0: Chapter 10 of A Book of Giants. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andy Frazier. A Book of Giants by Henry Wisham Lanier. Chapter 10 The Giant of St. Michael's Mount. Many are the tales of King Arthur's valiant round table of knights, whose deeds have been sung almost more than those of the king himself, but from the day when as a Damozoi of some fifteen years, men say in the sixth century after Christ, Arthur was crowned a successor to Uther Pendragon, he was an example of chivalry to his whole court. He was a very virtuous knight, right worthy of praise, whose fame was much in the mouths of men. To the haughty he was proud, but tender and pitiful to the simple. He was a stout knight, and a bold, a passing crafty captain, as indeed was but just, for skill and courage were his servants at need, and large of his giving. He was one of love's lovers, a lover also of glory, and his famous deeds are right fit to be kept in remembrance. He ordained the courtesies of the court, and observed high state in very splendid fashion, So long as he lived and reigned, he stood head and shoulders above all princes of the earth, both for courtesy and prowess, as for valour and liberality. Having settled his own realm in peace and restored the kingdom to its ancient borders, he conquered Ireland, Norway, Denmark and Flanders and, after nine years at war, added France to his dominions. To him, thus flushed with victory, came ambassadors from the emperor of Rome, bidding him to appear at that city and make restitution for his wrongful attacks on the empire's provinces, or to expect to be hailed thither in bonds for judgment by the senate. The king's answer was to summon a vast army, to commit to the realm of care to his nephew, Mordred, who afterwards wrought such bail to that noble company, and set out over sea for Rome, not to carry tribute, But to seek it. A puissant and well-armed host it was that set forth, and the warrior monarch who led them was arrayed in harness that surpassed all his followers. His thigh-pieces were of steel, wrought strong, and fairly by some cunning smith. His hauberk was stout and richly chased, even such a vesture as became so puissant a king. Upon him was girt his sword, Excalibur, "'Mighty was the glaive, and long in the blade. "'It was forged in the Isle of Avalon, "'and he who brandished it naked in his hand "'deemed himself a happy man. "'His helmet gleamed upon his head. "'The nasal was of gold, circlets of gold, "'adorned the headpiece, with many a clear stone, "'and a dragon was fashioned for its crest. "'This helm had once been worn by Uther, his sire.' THE KING WAS MOUNTED ON A DESTRIER, CHARGER, PASSING FAIR, STRONG AND SPEEDY, LOVING WELL IN THE BATTLE. ABOUT HIS NECK WAS SET HIS SHIELD, A CLEAN OF ELEPHANT'S BONE, IVORY, ON WHICH WAS PAINTED SEVERAL COLOURS OF THE IMAGE OF OUR LADY OF ST. MARY. THE LANCE HE CARRIED WAS NAMED RON. IT WAS A STRONG SHAFT, TOUGH AND GREAT, SHARP AT THE HEAD AND VERY WELCOME AT NEED IN THE PRESS OF THE BATTLE. It had been made in Camarthen by a smith that Hight Griffin, and King Uther had carried it before time. Setting out from Southampton with his great host, the King sailed for France, and though the mariners, steering by the stars, were very fearful of the dark, the ships came safely to Haven very early in the morning at Barfleur in Normandy. They had been but a little while in the land when tidings were brought to the king that a marvellously strong giant, newly come to that land, had carried off Helen, the niece of his kinsman, Huel. The doleful lady the giant, named Dinnebuch, had taken to a high place known as St. Michael's Mount, though in that day there was neither church nor monastery on the cliff, but it was all but shut close by the waves of the sea. The adventure which followed was told many times in the old days by Wace, Leamon, and others. Let us listen to the unknown romancer of the 14th century who left us, Morte Arthur. When they had reached the shore and raised their tents, a Templar came and informed the king, Here, too, is a tyrant that torments thy people, a great giant of Genoa engendered by fiend." He hath devoured more than five hundred people and also many infants and free-born children. This hath been his sustenance now for seven winters, and yet is the glutton not sated, so well it pleases him? In the country of Cotentin no people has he left outside the strong castle enclosed within the walls, for he has completely destroyed all the children of their commons and carried them to his crag and devoured them there. The Duchess of Brittany he has taken to-day near Reims, as she rode with her fair knights, and led her to the mountains where he abideth. We followed afar off, more than five hundred barons and citizens and noble bachelors, but he reached the crag. She shrieked so loud, the horror of that creature I shall never forget. She was the flower of France, or of five realms, and one of the fairest that was ever formed, the gentlest jewel accounted by lords from Genoa to Giron, by Jesus of heaven. She was thy wife's cousin, as thou mayest know, and sprung from the noblest race that reigned in this earth. As thou art a righteous king, take pity on the people, and endeavour to avenge them that are thus affronted." "'Alas!' said the king. So long as I have lived, had I known of this, it had been well. It had not happened fairly, but fallen foul, that this fiend hath destroyed the fair lady. I had left her than all France this fifteen winters, that I had been before that fellow a furlong away, when he laid hold of that lady and led her to the mountains. I had left behind my life, ere she suffered harm. But can you tell me the crag where lives that man?' "'I will go to that place and speak with him "'to deal with that tyrant for treason to his lord "'and make a truce for a time till it may happen better. "'Sire, see yon foreland with yonder two fires. "'There lurks that fiend. "'Ask when thou mayest upon the crest of the crag "'by a cold well that encloses the cliff within its clear stream. "'There wilt thou find dead folk without number, "'more florins thy faith than in all the rest of France.' And more treasure hath that traitor unlawfully got than there was in Troy, I trow, what time it was conquered. Then the noble king sighed for pity of those people, went right to a tent, and rested no longer. He welters unrestless with himself, and wringeth his hands. There was no white in the world that knew what he wanted. He called Sir Chaos that served with the cup, and Sir Bedevere the bold that bore his great brand. Look to it that after evensong be armed full well and mounted on horses by yonder thicket, by yon blithe stream, for I will pass privately in pilgrimage that way at supper time, when the lords are served to seek a saint by yon salt streams on St. Michael's Mount, where miracles are seen. After evensong, King Arthur himself went to his wardrobe and took out his clothes. He armed him in a jerkin with a rich golden fringe, and above that lay a gerin of acre right over, and above that a coat of gentle mail, a tunic of geradin with edges frayed. He drew on a basinet of burnished silver, the best that was in Basel with rich borders, the crest and the crown enclosed so fair with clasps of bright gold adorned with stones the visor, and the aventail, equipped so fair without a floor, with eyelets of silver, his gauntlets gaily gilded and engraven at the borders with grains and balls of most glorious hue. He bore a broad shield and calls for his sword. He jumped on a brown steed and waits on the heath. He rises in his stirrups and stands aloft. He strains himself stoutly and looks forth. Then he spurs the bay steed and rides to the thicket, and there his knights await him gallantly arrayed. They rode by that river that runneth so swift where the trees overstretch with fair boughs. The roe and their reindeer run recklessly there in thickets and rose gardens to feast themselves. The thickets were in blossom with may flowers, with falcons and pheasants of fair hues, All the birds live there, which fly with wings, for there sang the cuckoo full loud on the bushes. With all the birds of merriment, they gladdened themselves. The voice of the nightingale's note was sweet. They drove with the throstles three hundred at once, that this murmur of water and singing of birds might cure him of ill, who never was whole. Then moved these folks quickly and alighted on foot, And fastened their fair steeds afar off, then the king sternly told his knights to abide with their horses, and come no further. For I will seek this saint by myself, and speak with this master man that guards this mountain, and then ye partake of the sacrament one after the other, honourably at St. Michael's full mighty with Christ. The king climbs the crag with cliffs full high, to the top of the crag he climbs aloft, lifts up his umbra and looks about him keenly receiving the cold wind in his face to comfort him two fires he finds flaming full high for a quarter of a furlong he thus walks between them along the way by the well he wanders on to get to know of the warlock and where he abides He moves to the port fire, and even there he finds a very woeful widow wringing her hands and weeping with painful tears on a grave newly marked in the soil since midday, it seemed. He saluted her sorrowfully, with becoming words, and straightway asked after the fiend. Then this woeful widow joylessly greets him, rose up to her knees and clasped her hands, saying, Unhappy man, thou speakest too loudly. If yon warlock heareth, he will devour us both cursed be the wight that directed thee hither, that made thee to travel here in these wild parts. I warn thee, for thy honour thou seekest sorrow. Whither hathest thou, man? Thou seemed unhappy, goest thou to slay him with the bright sword? Wert thou whiter than Wade, or Gwain, thou shouldest win no honour? I warn thee beforehand, thou crossed thyself unsafely to seek these mountains six such as thou were not sufficient to cope with him alone for and thou seest him alone thy heart will fail thee to cross thyself safely so huge he seemeth thou art noble and fair and in the flower of thy manhood but thou art doomed already by my fay that i foretell thee were there fifty such as thee in the field or on the fair earth the monster with his fists would fell you all lo hear the duchess Today was she taken, deep buried in the ground. He murdered this mild lady, ere midday was wrung. Without any mercy, I wot not why, he slew her churlishly. And here have I embalmed her and buried her afterwards. For the grief of this incurable woe I shall never be happy again. Of all the friends she had, none followed after her but I, her foster-mother of fifteen winters, to move from this foreland I shall never attempt, but shall be found in this field until I am left dead. Then answer, so Arthur, to that old wife, I am come from the conqueror, courteous and noble, as one of the most noble of Arthur's knights, a messenger to this vile wretch, for the benefit of the people, to speak with his master man that guards this mountain, to treat with this tyrant for the treasure of lands, and to make truce for time till may turn out better." Fie, thy words are but wasted, quoth that wife then, for he sets but little by both lands and people, nor of rents of red gold he troubles, but he will break the law when he chooses himself, without the permission of any, as lord of his own. But he hath a mantle which he keeps for himself, that was spun in Spain by special women, and afterwards adorned in Greece full fairly. It is covered all over with hair, and embroidered with the beards of valiant kings, woven and combed that knights may know each other by his colour in his home there he abides. Here he seizes the revenues of fifteen kingdoms each Easter evening. However, it so happens that they send it themselves for the safety of the people at that season with certain knights, and he has asked Arthur all these seven winters. Therefore he herds here to outrage his people until the king of Britain has fed his lips and sent his beard to that bold monster with his best knights. Unless thou hast brought that beard, go no further, for it is bootless that thou shouldest stay for aught else, for he has more treasure to take when he likes than ever had Arthur or any of his forefathers. If thou hast brought the beard, he will be more pleased than if thou gavest him Burgundy or Britain but take care for love's sake that thou keep thy lips silent, so that no word escape from them whatever betides. See that thy present be ready, and trouble him but little, for he is at his supper, and will be easily angered. And now take my advice, and remove thy clothes, and kneel in thy mantle, and call him thy Lord. He sups all this season on seven children of the commons, chopped up on a charger of pure white silver with pickles and finely ground spices and wines of Portugal mixed with honey. Three luckless damsels turn his spits. Ha! I have bought the beard, quoth he, for thus it pleaseth me. Forth then I will go and bear it myself. But pray, if thou wilt tellt me where this monster abideth, I shall commend thee and I live.' so help me, Lord. Go straight to the fire, quoth she, that flames so high there lurks that fiend as thou wilt discover, but thou must go somewhat to the south, sidling a little, for his power of smelling extends over six miles. The source of the smoke he sought speedily, "'crossed himself safely with certain words, "'and going to the side he caught sight of the fiend, "'as she said, unseemingly supping alone. "'He lay at full length, reposing foully, "'the thigh of a man's limb he lifted up by the haunch, "'his back and lower parts, "'and his broad loins he baked at the dreadful fire. "'And he was breechless.' But there, roasting full rudely, dreadful meats of men and cattle bound together, a large pot crammed with anointed children, some spitted like birds, and women turned them. And then this comely king's heart was sorely grieved because of his people at that place where he stood. Then he girded on his shield and hesitates no longer. He brandishes his bright sword by its bright hilt, goes forth to the fiend with a rough determination, and loudly hails that giant with these fierce words. Now may almighty God that ruleth us give thee sorrow and trouble, thou glutton, that liest there for the foulest monster that ever was formed. Foully thy feedeth thyself, the devil take thy soul. Here is unclean quarry, fellow, by my troth, Refuse of all creatures, thou cursed wretch, because thou hast killed anointed children that hast made martyrs, and taken away the lives of those who are broached here on the spits in this place, and slaughtered by thy hand. I shall work thee thy punishment, as thou greatly deservest, by the might of St. Michael, who guardeth this mountain, and for this lady thou hast left dead." Gird thyself, thy son of a dog, the devil take thy soul, for thou shalt die to-day through the force of my arm. Then was the glutton dismayed and glared unseemingly. He grinned like a greyhound with grisly teeth. He gaped and groaned aloud with grievous gestures for wrath with the good king who spake to him in anger. His hair and his forelock were matted together and hung before his face for about half a foot. His brow and forehead were all like the skin of a frog and seemed freckled, hook-nosed like a hawk and a fierce bird, and hairy round his hollow eyes, with overhanging brows, rough as a dogfish, hardly could he be seen, so was he hid in that mass of hair, ears he had full huge and ugly to see, with horrible eyes and burning withal, flat-mouthed like a flounder with grinning lips. "'and the flesh in his front teeth as foul as a bear. "'His beard was rough and black and reached to his breast, "'fat like a porpoise with a huge carcass, "'and flesh still hung in shreds from his foul lips. "'Bull-necked was that giant, "'and broad of shoulder with a streaked breast "'like a boar with long bristles. "'Rough arms like oak branches with gnarled sides, "'limbs and loins right hateful to see, believe ye in truth.' Shovel-footed was that man, and he seemed to straddle, with unshapely shanks shuffling together, thick thighs like a giant and thicker in the haunch, fat as a hog, full terrible he looked. Whoever might reckon faithfully the full length of this man, from the face to the foot, he was five fathoms long. Then he started up, sturdily on two stiff shanks, and soon caught up a club of bright iron. He would have killed the king with his keen weapon, but through the wisdom of Christ, the karl failed. The crest and the coronial and the silver clasps cleanly with his club, he crashed down to earth. The king raises his shield and covers himself completely, and with his fierce weapon reaches him a blow, right full in the face he struck him so that the burnished blade reached into his brains. He wiped his face with his foul hands and strikes fast at Arthur's face fiercely thereafter. The king changes his foot and withdraws a little. Had he not escaped that blow, he had fared evil. He follows up fiercely and strikes a blow high up on the haunch with his hard weapon. That half a foot of that weapon is hidden in the flesh. The monster's hot blood runs down the hilt. Even to the entrails he strikes the giant. Then he groaned and roared and roughly strikes full eagerly at Arthur and on the earth strikes the sword's length within the sword. He smites at once so that the king nearly swooned from the force of the blow, but yet the king nimbly and swiftly strives. He smites with the sword so that it gashed the giant's loins and the blood gushes out so that it makes all the ground slimy on which he stands. Then he casts down his club and seizes the king. On the top of the crag he caught him in his arms and enfolds him securely to crush his ribs. So tightly holds he him that his heart is near to bursting. Then the doleful damsels fall down to the earth, kneeling and crying and wringing their hands. Christ deliver yon yonder knight and keep him from grief, and never let that fiend take his life. Yet the warlock is so mighty that he crushes him from under, Fiercely they rung and wrestled together. They weltered and wallowed on those rushes. They tumble and turn about and tear their clothes. Roughly from the top they tumble down all together. Arthur sometimes on top and sometimes beneath. From the crest of the hill right down to the hard rock. They cease not until they reach the brink of the sea. But Arthur with his dagger smites the giant until it sinks right up to the hilt in him. The thief in his dead struggle grasped him so fiercely that three ribs in the king's side were thrust asunder. Then Sir Canos the Keen moved in sorrow for the king. "'Alas, we are undone! My lord is overthrown! Fallen down with the fiend! It is over! We must be forfeit and banished for ever!' They lift up his hubbuck and fill beneath, his stern and his haunches too, right up to his shoulders, his flanks and his loins and his fair side, both his back and his breast and his bright arms.' They were glad when they found no flesh wounds, and for that they were joyed, these gentle knights. Now, certes, said Sir Bedevere, it seemeth by my lord, he seeketh saints, but seldom, wherefore he grips the tighter, that thus seizes this saint's body out of these high cliffs, to carry forth such a man, to clothe him in silver. By Michael, of such a fellow I have great wonder, than ever our sovereign lord should suffer him in heaven. If all saints be such who serve our Lord, I shall no saint be ever by my father's soul. Then laughs the bold king at Bedivere's words, This saint have I sought, so help me, our Lord. Wherefore, draw out thy sword, and pierce him to the heart. Make certain of this fellow he has angered me sorely. I have not fought with such a wight these fifteen winters, but in the mountains in Wales I met such another. He was the strongest by far that I ever met. And had not my fortune been favourable, dead would I be now. The other, whom the king had in mind, was Ryance, or Rytum, a Welsh giant who in his day made war on divers kings. Of these some were slain in battle, and others remained captive in his hand. Alive or dead, Ryance used them despitefully, For it was his wont to shave the beards of these kings, and purfles therewith a cloak of furs that he wore very rich. Vain glorious beyond measure was Riant's of his embroidered cloak. Now by reason of folly and lightness Riant sent messages to Arthur, bidding him to shave his beard and send it forthwith to the giant in all good will. Since Arthur was a mightier lord and a more virtuous prince than his fellows, Ryance made a covenant to prefer his beard before theirs, and hold it in honour as the most silken fringe of his mantle. Should Arthur refuse to grant Ryance the trophy, then naught was there to do but that body to body they must fight out their quarrel, in single combat, alone. He who might slay his adversary, or force him to own himself, vanquished, should have the beard for his guerdon, together with the mantle of furs, fringes and garniture and all. An old ballad describes the scene at Camelot when this impudent message arrived. As it fell out on Pentecost Day, King Arthur at Camelot kept his court royal, with fair Queen Dame Guinevere the Gay and many bold barons sitting in hall, with ladies attired in purple and pall, and heralds and hooks, hooting on high, cried Largess, Largess, Chevaliers, Trey Hardy. A doughty dwarf to the uppermost days, right pertly gan Prickle, kneeling on knee, with Stephen full stout amid all the praise, said, Now, Sir King Arthur, God save thee, and see, So Ryance of North Gales greeteth well thee, and bids thee thy beard anon to him send, or else from thy jaws he will it off-rend. For his robe of state is a rich scarlet mantle, with eleven king's beards bordered about, and there is room left yet in a cantle for thine to stand to make the twelfth out. This must be done, be thou never so stout. This must be done, I tell thee no fable. Morgue the teeth of all thy round table. When this mortal message from his mouth passed, great was the noise both in hall and in bower. The king fumed, the queen screeched, ladies were aghast, princes puffed, barons blustered, lords began lower. Knights, stormed squires startled, like steed in a stower, Pages and yeomen yelled out in the hall, Then in came Sir Kay, the King's Seneschal. Silence, my sovereigns, quote this courteous knight, And in that sound the stour began still. Then the dwarfs' dinner, full dearly, was dight, Of wine and wassail he had his will. And when he had eaten and drunken his fill, and hundred pieces of fine-coined gold were given this dwarf for his message bold. But say to Sir Ryan's, thy dwarf, quoth the king, that for his bold message I do him defy, and shortly with basins and pan will him ring, out of North Gales where he and I, with swords and not razors, quickly shall try, whether he or King Arthur will prove the best barber, and therewith he shook his good sword, Excalibur. King Arthur met this upstart in battle on a high mountain, and there the king slew Ryance with the sword, spoiling him of that rich garment of furs, with its borders of dead men's beards. And now, as he looked down at the loathy Dinabuck, he realised that he had this time conquered a monster more loathy and misshapen, a giant more horrible, bigger and mightier than was Ryance, even in the prime of his youth and strength. When he had thought upon these things, the king said to his comrades, Anon, strike off his head, and put it on a stake. Give it to thy squire, for he is well mounted. Bear it to Sir Howell, that is in sore straits, and bid him take heart, for his enemy is destroyed. Then bear it to Barflower and fasten it on iron, and set it on the barbican for men to see. My sword and my broad shield lie upon the moor on the crest of the crag where we first fought, and the club... "'thereby all of bright iron, that hath killed many Christian in the land of Cotentin. "'Go to the foreland, and fetch me that weapon, "'and let us go back to our fleet, where it lays in the water. "'If thou wilt have any treasure, take whatever thou likest. "'I will have the mantle and the club. I cover nought else.' "'Now they go to the crag, these comely knights, "'and brought him the broad shield and his bright weapon, the club and the cloak too.' Sir Chaos himself goes with the conqueror to show the kings whom the king had with him in secret, while bright day climbed up above through the clouds. By that time a great noise was there at the court, and in front of the comely king they kneeled all together. "'Welcome, our liege lord! Too long hast thou fought our governor under God, ablest and most noble, to whom grace is granted and given at his will.' Now thy happy arrival hath comforted us all. Thou hast in thy royalty revenged thy people. Through help of thy hand thine enemy is destroyed that overcame thy people and reft them of their children. Never was their kingdom so readily relieved of all its troubles. Then the conqueror speaks Christian-like to his people. Thank ye God, quoth he, for his grace and no man, for man's deed is never was but his own might, or a miracle of his mother, who is so mild to all. He called then the boatmen sharply at once to hasten with the shoremen to shift the goods. And that great treasure which the traitor won, see it be given to the commons, clergy and others of the country, see it be dealt out to my dear people so that none may complain under penalty of your lives. He ordered his cousin with knightly words to build a church on the rock where the body lay and a convent therein for service to Christ in memory of that martyr who rests in the mountain. And that beautiful pinnacled church thrusting up from the island's rocky cliffs towards the sky you may still see at this very day. End of chapter 10